welcome to the Archimedes Podcast, the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, where we take clinical questions generated by real clinicians, where they've looked up the best quality evidence that there is available, and come to a conclusion about their patient's problem. We also have a little bit on the practice of evidence-based medicine, uh, something struggling, maybe philosophical, maybe statistical, and maybe just wondering about how to carry on in the world. We'll open with that brief thing about how to practice evidence-based medicine with a wondering about whether pathology can ever be of any benefit. You see, back in the midst of pre-clinical training, and you can almost tell how old I am by the fact that I had training that was separated into the pre-clinical and clinical eras, I used to believe that disease arose through disordered bodies. That illness was a disturbance of anatomy and physiology, so that by understanding the basics of normal, we could then derive and define the pathological, predict the disorder that arose, and then define the therapy that we would have to use. I then learned, later on, that the influence of the mind and how we were thinking could lead to an altered interpretation, and that, to many extents, disease states were a function of how we understood the world and how we acted in the world. I later discovered that it was society that created ill health. It was inequality, poor housing, the pursuit of profit, literally creating illnesses because a drug could then be sold. I bought the idea that by understanding good clinical research and applying it to our patients, then we would get the best outcomes. Until the day I arrived when I realised that averages weren't always what they were cracked up to be and that tailored trousers for the average-sized school child fit the reception class and the school leavers equally poorly and that there had to be a better way of going on. And then finally, I crumpled into the position of realising that I'd probably never known how anything actually was caused or how anything was actually cured, but that every one of those worldviews might be helpful at different times and for different reasons. And so, despite the traditional evidence-based approach of placing pathological reasoning and bench science at the foot of the pyramid of evidence, uh, that in itself is also defunct, I think there are times when they can both be useful. For some situations, there is a remarkably clear understanding of what causes the disease and what can fix it. If you think about something like the Philadelphia chromosome that drives chronic myeloid leukaemia and blocking that, blocking the disease process. But there's also times when the pathology, the anatomy, the physiology can tell us what we need to know. So, for example, if we show that the distance between dural sac and skin is 18 millimetres or so on average on ultrasound, you're not going to need a very large randomised controlled trial to show that new needles with 4 millimetres depth of penetration won't work. You see, evidence-based medicine is not the way to do stuff. It is a framework of thinking. It allows you to develop your ideas and defend a thesis, a conception that you have. It is aimed at improving the well-being of people that we work with and work for. And within that, sometimes even understanding pathology can help. Now, we've got two clinical questions this month. One of them is an interview with two of the authors. But we'll start with the one that isn't an interview. And this is a neonatal one, as is the second one. 
The neonatal question is about the use of customised growth charts. And you might know that in obstetrics, when the baby is sort of growing and popping inside, mums are often given a customised growth chart to show how big the baby should be and how big the baby's likely to be so that you can get a better idea of when a baby is falling behind on its expected growth. Now, what we'll be using, or more used to using, is the UK version of the WHO growth charts, which are not based around that individual child and its development in the womb. But with the use of these customised growth charts comes a particular problem. The scenario was the admission of a two-year-old child from the postnatal ward who had become hypothermic and hypoglycemic, went into a heated cot and was following a feeding plan which has stabilised the blood sugar. And it was admitted to control those things and getting on top of stuff. In the maternal notes, there were no risk factors for sepsis, but as it's a neonate, you're already covering it, obviously, or any gestational diabetes. Everything about this baby is normal. Mum is 85 kilos, but her BMI is only 24 and a bit. She's otherwise healthy. Plotting the infant's birth weight at 3.5 kilos puts it on the 25th centile on a birth chart. But but the mum mentions that the obstetric team throughout the pregnancy were concerned because they thought that the baby was too small for her. It was below the 10th centile on the customised growth chart that they used, and they warned her the baby might need some extra support when it was born. And so that gets you wondering about what is the use of customised growth charts, and should we be using those instead of the WHO standards? Could using that and recognising the baby as small for gestational age for its own mother have led to recognition and treatment of the hypothermia and hypoglycemia earlier? Now, the search went away to have a look at a systematic review and a number of individual papers to try to pull together what we know about customised growth charts in babies that had just been born. What we found was 143 articles that might have been relevant, and they were screened through title, abstract, and, and 12 of them were looked at in full text before being thrown out, and 10 of them included in the end. What they did was examine a number of different types of approaches to the customised growth chart and a number of different sorts of adverse neonatal outcomes. And this in itself causes problems in bringing together a unified whole understanding of whether they work or not. One of the most clear studies took the born in Bradford cohort, which is a large birth cohort of babies, and looked to see whether the growth charts or customised charts for the individual baby or ethnic variations on the charts as some of you may know Bradford's an ethnically diverse population was better at predicting neonatal complications both of being too big and too small. The actual discriminatory function was relatively poor. The AUC was only just over 0.6 where 0.5 is what you would expect by chance. Not very good at outlining babies that will go on to have problems. Other studies looked in different countries, looking at different ways and adjusting for the populations that they were dealt with. They were looking really at a mixture of perinatal and neonatal outcomes, and and this might be the difficulty. These charts don't appear to have an amazing value. The customised charts don't have a great value in distinguishing babies that are going to have problems and aren't going to have problems, but perhaps it's because they are tools for different jobs. The customised growth chart is customised for the interuterine environment of that child. The other growth charts are for the postnatal growth, and they're asking different things. Maybe 
if we looked at the data and were able to split it out very, very clearly, then the perinatal problems might be predictable from the customised growth chart, but then other issues to do with postnatal life would be more held in the WHO line. The clinical bottom line of this study is that we should not change our practice because there's no strong evidence one way or the other. But it's a very good read, a very detailed read, and it deserves you to go over to the website and actually pull this out. The study was undertaken by Umberto Piaggio as part of the MSC that was done at the University of Leeds, and he's currently working at the Sheffield Children's Hospital. It is a thoughtful piece, and it's worth looking at if you're thinking of submitting your own Archimedes. Now, onwards to our interview. This was conducted across the telephones, and so has a slightly different audio quality, um, for which we make no apologies, but do explain in advance. We hope you enjoy it, and again, it refers to a neonatal setting. Hello and welcome to the Archimedes interview segment of this month's podcast. With me, I've got Harsha and Mona. Harsha, Mona, please could you introduce yourselves and where you're working at the moment? Hi, I'm Harsha Gowda. I'm a consultant neonatologist at uh, Birmingham Heartlands Hospital. Um, hi, uh, I'm Mona Noraldine. I'm a pediatric trainee in West Midlands, uh, specifically at Royal Stoke University Hospital. But I did this Archimedes when I was working at Luton and Donestable Hospital. Thank you for coming on the podcast to talk about your Archimedes on the value of capillary sampling in little babies. Now, this isn't an area that I'm particularly into because I'm a pediatric oncologist and all of my children seem to be born with central lines. But I do understand it's really important. Yeah, so in the neonatal world, um, it's very common for preterm babies and even term babies who have a long-term admission to the neonatal unit to have a capillary blood sampling for various reasons, for example, for blood gas or if we are measuring the blood sugar. So by the time these babies get sore healed, so because according to... The current guidelines, we are doing the heat bricks only on both lateral and medial aspects of the heel. So so if a baby's having multiple tests for blood sugars and blood gases and so on, and it's a preterm baby, then very soon the same area of both heels will have been used up. Yes, yeah. And because it is confined to a small, tiny area of a tiny heel, it becomes very, very sore. So we wanted to to discover or to learn why we are doing this, why we are doing only on the lateral and medial aspects of the heel, why we cannot use the whole plantar aspect of the heel. So our question is, in term and preterm neonate, which is, this is the patient, is lancing the center of the heel, which is intervention. If compared with lateral and medial aspects for blood sampling associated with bone or cartilage infection, which is the outcome? And I guess that that's the case because... The idea, at least going into this, is that, that it's only on those outside, sort of the, the edges, that the, 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 even on a preterm neonate, the, the skin and the soft tissues are thicker, so that the capillary sampling doesn't go in and then lead to bone or cartilage-related problems, potentially infection, and problems in later life from the consequences of that. Yes, so what we did, we did a literature search, we used midline, keywords like neonates, 
heal, calcium, calcaneus, ultrasound, osteomyelitis. And the search yields 67 articles, but only four of them were relevant. Although they are quite old, and the most recent one of them was in 2005. And do you think that the fact that they were done so long ago, well, when I say so long ago, uh, 10 years and longer ago, does that make a difference to the types of neonates or the fatness or the, the sort of the tissue thickness that you'll be dealing with in babies today, Harsha? I don't think so, Bob. Like, I don't think much, nothing has changed much. The problem is, you know, this is an area where not much research has been done, to be honest. Because as a trainee, I have seen many times putting a chart where the heel pricks has to be done on the small babies. And if you look into the evidence, basically the only two articles, one was published by uh, Bloomfield in 1979 and other one was done by Rainer et al. That was also published in 1990. And both of these studies were basically like a post-mortem examination on babies where they measured the subcutaneous uh, tissue thickness in the eel using the calipers. And what they found was the thickness on the medial and lateral aspect is slightly more compared to the center of the heel. So that's why the recommendation came into practice probably 20, 30 years ago. And Mona, with the articles that you found looking more specifically, looking at ultrasound and stuff like that, did they did they support this idea that it really was only safe to go on the outsides because of these post-mortem type caliper-based investigations? Or did they come up with a different conclusion? Yes, uh, the, the two recent studies, relatively. Uh, one was done by Jane Ital in 1999 and the other done by Irina Ital in 2005. Both of them used the ultrasound to measure the distance between skin and pre-code, the prechondrium um, on the heel to get um, an idea what is the shortest distance and more likely to cause infection. But they found that, for example, Jenny Tell found that it would be safe actually to use the whole plantar aspect of the heel for, for uh, lancing. In Arena Etal, they have a more specific, they have a higher number of patients and they compared actually preterm and term babies. They found that the, the SVD less than three millimeter was higher in the preterm babies. And if they subdivide the groups to less than 33 weaker and more than 33 weaker, it was the SVD, well, there was a big statistically significant difference between the group with less than 33 weaker gestation and the other two groups. So from their recommendation that it could be safe to use a, the, the automated lance, lancets on the whole plantar aspects in babies more than 33 weaker, but they were not sure whether we can use it in babies less than 33 weaker or not. Given that there is a difference between term and preterm and distances, which it calls the conclusion about the smallest preterm babies a, a little bit more insecure, a little bit more uncertain on that conclusion compared to the one on the basis of the term babies, I guess. 
Yeah. And so, Harsha, given where the initial recommendations from and the, the data that you found, although the data isn't extensive, there aren't thousands of RCTs on this, um, what's the sort of the clinical conclusion that you can draw for this for people practicing in, in neonatology and not wanting to rip up the outside parts of the heels of these small babies? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the main issue is even the lancing, the, the lancing instrument, what we use as evolved over the last 30, 40 years. Uh, previously, like probably 30 years back, they used to use like a, just a needles to prick the sole. But nowadays, we use the automated lancets. Uh, that has made a huge change in how we lance the preterm babies. Um, if you look at the most of the automated lancets, which are used in UK, the penetration depth, is the maximum is 1.2 millimeters in even in term baby but in preterm babies the maximum penetration depth the lancet what we use is 0.85 millimeters so that's a lot smaller than the the than the distances and and and, and a, uh, it still gives you a margin of safety then absolutely absolutely the ultrasound measurement was like in you know, a minimum distance was three millimeters in both the studies so the lancing is very small so there's definitely there's a margin of even there's a margin of error definitely that's really clear that that whilst the the children themselves haven't changed over time the technology used for the lancing has altered and so it becomes a safer thing to do because the depth of penetration of the of the needle is much more controlled and much smaller in today as compared to maybe 30 40 years ago when these first postmortem studies were being carried out well, thank you very much for joining us on the Archimedes podcast to describe why you started your question, where you went with it, and how you pulled it all together to come up with a, uh, a hugely useful answer, I think. Um, so your opinion would be that in preterm and term babies that need repeated capillary measurements, using the automated lenses in particular, it is safe to use the whole of the plantar aspect uh, and that that should not lead to greater problems and, in fact, may lead to fewer problems because you'd be spreading it over a wider area. Absolutely, yes. That leaves fewer problems, definitely. Otherwise, if you focus on just the smaller areas, you know, the multiple pricks on the smaller areas can make the you know, skin to tear and can cause more bleeding rather than uh, using the all of the heel. Lovely. Thank you very much for talking to us. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. And that's all for this month's Archimedes. Thank you for listening. We'll speak to you next month.